Sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Recorded here in the waning hours of a sunny spring afternoon in Middle Tennessee. Uh, Aaron As and I dust were- darkens the streets <laughs> and shadows fall long. <laughs> there are a million stories in the little. No. <laughs> and Aaron, we are close to being back, if not in a studio, then at least in a shared physical space to kind of look at each other across the table. But for today, you and I are still some 30 miles apart connected by the worldwide interweb and soon to be in conversation with a guest. Uh, But but before we get to that, I want to touch on something. Uh, You wrote, what would we call it, an article? You wrote down your thoughts on some of the stuff that's come out on Ravi Zacharias. Some Mm -hmm. of the stuff that uh, from his past that was hidden investigations and uh for those that don't know how how would you summarize what has come out about ravi well all i would say is that a guy who was regarded as a paragon of virtue and was pivotal in uh the conversion and the nurturing of you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of christians around the world uh a fellow who died about a year and a half ago uh band he has fallen hard off a pedestal and uh yeah and and some of that was sexual in nature yes and and had been hidden and not just hidden but very purposefully hidden yeah um and so you wrote about that with Mm -hmm. a lot of compassion comparing hey this is this is my story my experience with how i felt about him but also where i came from and I think you did a great job of empathizing and kind of opening up that conversation where uh, in most of our stories, it's not just we're the villain or the hero. That, yeah, yeah. That if, if we come out as the pure hero, then we've successfully lied about a bunch of shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're writing about. But then a, f- a couple people wrote back to you and we're going to try to figure out a way to, they were rather long correspondence, so we're not going to read them, but they had some thoughts and took exception uh, to what you were saying. Yeah. And yeah. we want to bring it up today because I think they made some really important points. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you want to try to summarize their points? Sure. Yeah. You know, the first kind of pushback, I got a lot of, you know, I got a lot of amens on, on the, uh, on the blog when I put it up and people appreciated the perspective and, and yeah, that always makes me feel, you know, warm and fuzzy, get a little bit of applause, a little bit of affirmation. Um, that certainly is part of my motivation for doing anything. Uh, and I got a little pushback, but it was very kind. Uh, but uh, the first guy to push back was a guy I've known for now, oh man, more than 50 years. We were teenagers together at Bible school where my dad was head of maintenance and his dad was president of the place. Uh, Carrie's now uh, a professor of philosophy and a professing atheist. He's post-Christian faith, uh, but still, you know, we're, we're in communication. He's a, I, I respect him. He's a good guy. 
Uh, and he thought that uh, while he, you know, he affirmed my, you know, wanting to be in the, put myself in the shoes of Ravi Zacharias. One of the things I said in my piece was, you know, I did eventually disclose my sexual behavior, my illicit sexual behavior, and actually gave up the ministry to do it. But in my case, it wasn't a huge sacrifice. I was young. The ministry wasn't going well. I wasn't putting anybody else out of a job. It was kind of a relief to leave and, you know, go off into the obscurity of business. And so I imagined that um, Ravi would have had to pay a much higher price were he to be honest about his sexual, his illicit sexual behavior. The, you know, it would have been catastrophic with his level of celebrity, with the large organization that he had built. Uh, so, uh, and I said in the piece that it was hard for me to imagine that, to, to think of him as a, a cynical fraud. You know, I, I preferred to believe that he was, that he did passionately believe the message that he proclaimed, that, but that the, the price of coming clean was just too high for him even to consider. So the, that's the, that's yes, the point that's, at which, go ahead. I was going to say that's the common thread, I think, between both of the correspondences you had. Yeah, yeah. Where they, they both yeah. were saying, no, this started way earlier with lies so that mm -hmm. he could put himself in a position that there were financial gains that seemed to be built on those lies. Right. And then beyond that, going into the sexual part, that it wasn't just using sex, but that he also ended up buying two massage parlors in Atlanta, was it? Right, right. Opening two massage parlors and importing right. masseuses from right. other countries. Yeah. So And abusing this, them. Yeah, and there was grooming behavior, right. and and uh, and an awful lot of vicious counterattack against uh, the few people. Uh, you know, whenever there was a criticism, he was quick to squelch it, and it was kind of merciless. In so so yeah so go ahead. No, go ahead. All right. So, you know, the first response I got was from, you know, my old friend who said, you know, this sounds like predatory behavior to me. I don't think, Nate, that you would ever have done what he did. Um, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel to me as though he experienced remorse. Uh, and, you know, he was operating on a different moral plane. And then I got a letter from Barb Steffens, who's been with us on the show and who I greatly admire. She's really a pioneer in understanding betrayal trauma. She's very, very, you know, she's Dr. Barbara Steffens, and she understands sex addiction and she understands trauma. And it bothered her enough that she wrote me up, up privately to say that we need to preserve the distinction between the addict and the predator between addictive behavior, sex addiction, and sex abuse. Um, for the sakes of those who have been, fallen, uh, fallen prey to the addiction, I do know, uh, here's the thing we do know, not all sex addicts are predators. In fact, most aren't. Um, I didn't engage in predatory behavior, although I... Uh, 
unwittingly and naively and blindly participated in a predatory and abusive system where women were being exploited. But I didn't want to see that. Uh, and so I didn't see it. I never saw a pimp. Uh, I imagined, I, I, I never imagined that any woman I paid to have sex with uh, was uh, was there uh, under anything other than her own volition. And maybe I could be a, I mean, I was crazy. I was crazy. But, you know, I'm a nice guy and could be a bright, I could be, I don't know. So um, it's important that um, somebody who admits to sexually compulsive behavior has fallen prey to an addiction, that they're not automatically lumped in with a, with a sex offender or a predator. Right. That, so let's, that is let's, not necessarily the case. It's not, but it brings up really important points. Yeah. Uh, I, I agreed with, I, I think, just about everything that was in both of the letters um, yeah. that you got. And by the way, they were the most gracious letters I've ever heard people write to <laughs> someone saying, I totally disagree with you. And by the way, there's way more. It was amazing, yeah. both of them. So good job, the, both of you. A very soft touch from both. Of, yeah. Oh okay. my gosh, velvet covered bricks, if ever there were. Yeah. Uh, right. So let's. As you and I talked about it earlier, it made me think of a friend that worked in the homeless community, and I so appreciated this one talk he gave to the college students I was working with, saying the word homeless causes as much problem as good when it comes to helping homeless people uh-huh because some homeless people are homeless because they're mentally ill some are addicts some are women who are running from an abusive uh marriage some have fallen on hard luck and that's a short-term thing but they need help getting on their feet and by looking for a solution for homelessness, you never can because each of those are so different. They just mm. resulted in the same uh, state, which yeah. was homelessness. Yeah. So when you were talking about sex addicts, that can also become this big overarching deal. Yes. Yes. Where then we don't say, oh, no, but what are you actually dealing with? What are you struggling mm -hmm. with? Mm. And your friend Carrie mentioned it, that in the church, it, the, the idea of original sin and the statement that every sin is equal in God's eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, in a certain theological way, yes, but there are other aspects to understanding sin, which have to do with consequences, which have to do with, hey, that's sin, yeah, you can be forgiven, and you also need to go to jail for the rest of your life. Yeah. So yeah. we have to put that into this mix. Because even when you say not every sex addict is a predator, which is so true, my next question is, but are predators allowed to find healing as well? Yeah, yeah. And some of the the loneliest people I've ever known were people that abused children. Yes, yeah. And they had no place left in society. And society generally says, well, they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I totally get that feeling. I, I get yeah. it. Yeah. However, is there a place for them in this, in a community of honesty and recovery? Yeah. Yeah. I'll let you answer that because that's a really hard question. 
It is a hard question, but certainly there is a place for them in Samson. Uh, and I do think, by the way, that this uh, extremely uh, hypervigilant and punitive approach, well, I, I agree with the punitive approach, as long as there is a therapeutic element. Uh, but we have successfully eliminated almost any place that somebody who has crossed a line in sexual behavior with a minor uh, can admit to it, can confess and find help and healing because uh, anybody they tell is pretty much anybody they tell, if it is a professional, is required by law to report them to law enforcement. Uh, and as well-intended as that legislation is, I think it just leads to more and more abuse because more and more uh, offenders are, you know, locked into secrecy and uh, the pattern doesn't get interrupted because nobody else can find out. That's a whole different issue. It is, it is a different issue. And I think you're not... I think the danger that you're pointing to is if they're able to talk to someone, they can move towards the place of that proper confession and dealing with those consequences versus hiding it where it stays dark and dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I think it creates more victims, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but that that's another thing. Samson has to be and is a safe place, not just for the – not just for – uh, you know, those who have adopted a sexual behavior as a maladaptive response to trauma. Is that maybe a politically uh, correct way to talk about the addict? I don't know. Yeah. Or, or those who drink a little too much or those who. Right. Cause, cause all of a sudden we are making a spectrum where right. we put, uh, which is just exactly what we are pushing against in the evangelical church. Here is the, here's the spectrum and you're okay if you're on this side of the line, but if you're on this side, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when it comes to someone like Ravi, the lesson I think is, okay, you were relating to him through the lens of your own addiction and recovery process. Right. And I was and, projecting onto him my own uh, yeah, right, uh, uh, motivations and, and expectations. The, and the saddest part of the story is, no, his stuff went way deeper and created uh, a wake of victims far mm -hmm. larger than yours. Yeah. And the saddest part is that it's only after his death that it comes out how beautiful it could have been if he could have found the courage or community to step up and say, all right, this has to stop. Yeah. Or if he had wanted to, I mean, see, that's the, the question that I, I imputed to him a desire for something different. And mm -hmm. that's the point at which both Carrie and Barbara ex express some skepticism. It could well be, that uh, his mental state was uh, that he didn't feel uh, guilt or remorse for what he was doing. Well, uh, I, I think it's fair with the level of lies and the length of time that those lies affected so many people. There's certainly some sociopathic kinds of things that have yeah, to be going on. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
and and thank goodness we don't have to judge that here because that's so not in our purview but for those people that are dealing with some next level stuff that they say this is worse than all the other guys that are Mm -hmm. in this community well you might be right in certain aspects that yeah there are bigger consequences there's stuff you gotta own up to yeah i mean you and i nate walked with a brother who knew that if he went home he would go to jail right and that it might be for the rest of his life right and that took a number of years and he finally came to the point that he he was able to go and face that yeah and walk through that process yeah. But I'm so grateful for the brothers that he had around the country that mm-hmm. took a very slow walk with him and yeah. didn't just say, dude, well, this is what's right. So go do it. He right. would have he would have been gone. Yeah. 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 We take a uh, we take a personal approach. We see the person. Right. We see the person and it's not always just a knee jerk reaction. And And can I say one more thing? Not everybody is the traveling companion for every other man's brokenness. So there are certain people who have suffered trauma. Maybe they were victims of some kind of abuse. And there is a man within their community that is abusing others in that way. They don't have to feel guilty that, I guess I should try to figure out how to how to walk through these amazing <laughs> triggers to walk yeah. this man yeah. through that. Not every man is every other man's traveling companion. Yes. But there's got to be someone for everyone or yeah. else we're just leaving one of those hundred sheep out there and saying, well, we got 99 and probably no one's going to notice that one missing. Mm. Mm. Point well made, Aaron. Well, we have a, we have a, a, an inspiring conversation coming up. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm just going to stay. I'm just going to say, stay with us. You're going to love this one. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast, and uh, we are fortunate this week to have joining us as our guest, Bonnie Burns of StrongWives, strongwives.com, or, or .org, I'm not certain. Uh, com. Com, okay. Bonnie, you are, uh, I, I understand you also are in Tennessee, but you're some distance from us. You're off in East Tennessee, are you, in the pretty part yes. of the state? Yes, yeah, okay. we are just west of Knoxville. Okay. That's a that's just beautiful country out there, um, and I wonder if uh, before we hear about strong wives and what's going on, if you could tell us some of your story. How is it that you wound up uh, doing this work? Well, the little cliche within 
this community is that this career, you don't choose this career, this career <laughs> chooses you. Yeah, yeah. So um, I am a partner, at, having discovered through drips of discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, but my, my real story starts with the, the desire to know more about sexual intimacy. So I don't know if, mm-hmm. if you're okay with me veering off on that. Oh, track sure. Just oh, a absolutely. Tiny bit. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Yeah. yeah. So, so earlier in our marriage, in an effort to restore some things after a discovery, we took an amazing marriage class and we even facilitated it for a while. Um, and then his travel became too much and we resigned from teaching, but I still wanted to give back. I still wanted to help marriages for the kingdom. And I realized God gave me the gift of writing and I love to do research. And I had seen how um, some things that we had learned in the marriage class had helped us. So I started a blog called Oyster Bed 7 years ago in 2012, mm-hmm. researching about healthy, godly sexual intimacy. So that has grown and snowballed into, I am also on a podcast called Sex Chat for Christian Wives, and we discuss tastefully, there's four of us, it's a roundtable discussion, and we tastefully talk about just common issues in marriage revolving Mm -hmm. around sexual intimacy. And so I, to be even more credible, I went back to school and obtained a counseling degree Um, And it was through that education that empowered me, that helped me understand addiction, um, that gave me the understanding of what interdependence is in marriage, where there's two people walking alongside each other. Mm -hmm. And um, so when the final big discovery happened, the D-Day happened, I was more equipped to help both of us. Um, Yeah to kind of put him on a trajectory because of boundaries and to help myself know how to heal. Yeah. Yeah. That term D-Day is a, is a familiar one in our community. Uh, very often we have guys reference, you know, the big explosion, what seems like the end of the world, the worst day of their lives, which has the potential to become the best day of their lives. Uh, when finally the covers are pulled away and, uh, at least the upper layer of this addiction is exposed. And um, so Bobby, I am, I, am, am I understanding your timeline that you, you guys were teaching classes, you were studying healthy sexual intimacy, you did counseling and then D-Day happened after all of that? Yes. Yes. You okay, are correct. So, so usually <laughs> that's a bit of a reverse order. So that, I mean, did that just cause incredible confusion and trauma because you thought this is something I get and surely this wouldn't be our thing? It did cause incredible confusion and trauma, but it also solidified in my brain that sex is neither the cause of this addiction nor the cure. Ah, ah. So unpack that. Unpack that. What what a great line that is. What a great line that is. And so true. Yeah, unpack it for us. Yeah, unpack that. Um, So we were in a marriage with healthy sexual intimacy. Uh, We had compromised on 
consistency, frequency. I write and talk about this stuff. It's something I do with ease. Um, So sex wasn't the cure. Yeah, yeah. Easy, easy for a guy to uh, when we're blame shifting and uh, you know trying to uh, find some way to live with ourselves in the reality of an addiction. Mm-hmm. To uh, tell ourselves the story that if only she were more sexually available, or uh, you know, some put at least some of the blame on her. And I see over and over again, poor partners, wives accepting responsibility for an addiction. That is not their fault at all. And even when the husband is gains clarity, as I did fairly early in recovery, I discovered, you know, my, my sex addiction was not, was really not about sex and was not about Allie and not her fault at all. I, I sensed that it was hard for her to accept and internalize that. Um, is that something you encounter with the, with the women that you... Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Because typically they haven't worked through as much stuff as I had worked through before D-Day. Yeah. Um, Even though I had had little drips of discovery. And to tell you the truth, in the very beginning, I started to work because I did accept some of that blame. Yeah. Yeah. However, as I matured and researched and grew, I realized that sexual intimacy is for me too, and that I had mm-hmm. just as much voice in the bedroom as he did. So, oh, hey, can, would you mind? Would you mind just saying that one more time? <laughs> what did I say? Um, yeah, yeah, sexual intimacy is for you too. Oh, yeah, sexual intimacy is for me too, um, and I had just as much voice in the bedroom as he did. That's when I rejected the blame. Uh, and rejected the high drive as the impetus for for what happens in the bedroom. What happens in the bedroom is for connection. It's for deep, intimate knowing. It's not for the rush of dopamine. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that certainly gets back to the the Hebrew idea of Yada. knowing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's beautiful. So, how was it for your husband? Because I'm. I'm just picturing the story unfolding, and here he has this intelligent, engaged wife, and now he has to disclose. Uh, do you think that made it easier or harder, or was it just confusing all around? I'm going to, I'm thinking, I'm quiet because I'm thinking. Um, I think it was confusing. I understood. At that time, at the time of D-Day, even though I was incredibly devastated, I mean, there are no words, mm. only only other partners will get it um, from, from my perspective. I, I know my husband had his perspective. Um, but confusing for us both, yes. Easier for him because I had understanding, maybe, because I understood that the sex addiction came from a deep dark place that that began before we were married so i understood that um yeah i was kind of ahead of the game there yeah you're you said you know sex isn't the problem and in the solution information and knowledge isn't simply the solution either that you still had to walk through your own journey regardless of knowing the right answers oh absolutely and I'll tell you what the key 
the key to walking through this, of course, in the beginning, you kind of want to isolate, or at least I did. I'm not going to say my experience is universal. I isolated some because no one in my world had really dealt with this before. I had to seek a community of women that understood. And I found it in two places. Uh, One is hope redefined. I hope you're okay with me giving some resources. Yeah. Yeah. Hope redefined. I'm not sure if it's .com or .org. Um, There's some great classes offered there, but also the wives group of Samson society, Mm. which is the Sarah society now. Yeah. Which I have had the pleasure of, you know, being a part as a participant. And then just recently I've been asked to be on the leadership. So, um, but, but just having the community of women who get it and we're all on different levels, you know, of our healing process. And that's totally fine, but Mm. we're all there praying for each other. We're all there understanding each other. And cheering each other on in whatever way they need to be cheered on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You mentioned uh, earlier when you talked about the immediate aftermath of D-Day that there had to be some adjustments made because of boundaries. Can you describe for us what kind of the what what were the boundaries that you two kind of put in place when this whole conversation went to a whole new level of transparency? We leveled up for sure. Yeah. Yes. Um, so boundaries, first and foremost, he was defined as CSAT and I surrendered his recovery and sobriety to that CSAT. Nice. So whatever the CSAT said for him to do, I was wholeheartedly on board with and would not impede in any way. Uh, he found an incredible CSAT and through him, there was a... Um, 90 days, 90 meetings. Mm-hmm. And I just want to praise God for Samson Society because those, <laughs> those were the 90 meetings. Wow. And in that 90 meeting, we did a 90-day sex fast. Mm-hmm. And within the 90 days of sex fast, we worked really hard to build our emotional intimacy, our friendship, do things together. And the guys in the Samson Society helped him get through those days where he couldn't reach out for his coping mechanism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so yeah. thankful for them. Yeah. Wow. So that was the initial boundary. There's been other boundaries put into place that haven't because boundaries are to keep me safe. They are not to punish him. Because mm. when when D-Day happened, the most important person in the world to me was now dangerous. Because the trust was murdered. I couldn't trust him. He was dangerous, relationally dangerous. So when I put these boundaries in place, they weren't to punish him. They were, uh, the ultimate goal was, the ultimate goal for them was to help him heal or help him at least see the path towards healing. And I knew that he had to, you know, just come alongside other guys. Wow. So when did you when did you start the the strong wives after that? So process? interesting story. 
Um, you know, I've, I mentioned there were some drips of discovery and thinking that after the last drip, he kind of had it together. False, he did not. But I wanted to help other wives through this. And so I started, I bought Strong Wives before the last D-Day. Mm-hmm. And I started praying every time I sat down to the computer to work on that website, because I am the IT person. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I prayed because I knew I cannot start this ministry if my husband isn't isn't full of sexual integrity. Mm -hmm. And so I started praying Luke 8.17 over him every day when I would sit down to work. And so about a year later, D-Day happened. So Strong Wives wasn't put up until he was in good recovery. Nice. And so I'm looking at it. I brought it up earlier. And I I thought the questions were really interesting. Is Strong Wives right for you? Um, first one is you discovered your spouse or fiance using pornography. The second is you wish to save your marriage or relationship if possible. And I paused on that because I thought, wow, I have known people who have automatically assumed I have to save this, but because that was their biggest goal, it was hard for them to actually work through the process. And other people that were so angry that they just wanted to dump the whole thing when it might be the greatest gift in their life to go through this process. So how do you talk to a person to discover what, what are the right reasons to be going on this journey and how do you prepare your heart for it? Well, at first, she just has to be stabilized. Um, so at first, there's really not a lot of talking about the relationship and where she ultimately wants it to go. First, there's just listening to her story and helping her find relational safety. And if that means there's a separation it could be. Um, she might be fine with him, you know, going on with life together. That's, but the safety comes through boundaries. And those are, those boundaries are up to her because only she knows her marriage and her husband. But no, I don't discount that the marriage, I, it's not up to me to help her decide. I'm not there to put thoughts in her head. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm there to help her decide what she wants to do because if she's not on board, uh, that's, if she's not on board to help the marriage or if she's, I'm sorry. No, Uh, you're doing great. If she's not on board and then the marriage will be built on a falsehood. But boy, Mm -hmm. what you just described is not, always the evangelical process where it's, oh, we put these components into the equation and here's what you have to do now in your marriage, in your relationship. It's not a whole lot of discovery of people's own ahas. It's stealing a lot of epiphanies and making a lot of uh, commands. Yes. Yes. No, I'm, I'm there to help her find safety. And once she has safety, if her husband if you know it's not finding safety 
takes a while. And so it's, I don't really recommend she make a big decision, especially if there's been a huge attachment bond sever. I mean, I just recommend her to take at least six months to Mm -hmm. make any kind of big decision. It's just like, and it has a lot to do with grief as well. You know, when someone loses an important person in their life, a lot of grief counselors recommend you wait six months to do anything big, six months to change a job, six months to sell a house. And that's the same, the same recommendation I give to my women. Was there a specific moment you felt safe again, or was it a gradual thing and you just one day went, oh, wait, I'm here? You know what? I'm not there yet. But I am on the way. I mean, it takes for trust to be rebuilt when you've done everything that you thought you could do to keep from this, you know, to keep this from happening. Mm -hmm. um, Trust is severed. Yeah. Yeah. So. So you find it in little bits at a time? Yes, actually, yes. Little bits at a time. And it's up to him to earn the trust. I'm not going to give it to him anymore. I did that through the first few strips of discovery. So I've learned and I've that the trust is on him now. Mm. But I've given him through my boundaries, I've given him specific actions he can do to help build my trust. For example, we just went on a beach vacation, which I knew would be hard. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. things at the beach that can be triggering. Um, But we discussed some practical, pragmatic things he could do to help me feel safe. And he did every one of them. And he was proactive and did more. That's what builds trust. Wow. How important to you is uh, your husband's participation in Samson and his work with the CSAT? It is very important because, as I said, sex isn't the cure for this. Um, The cure for this is something more deep-seated, and I understand that. Mm -hmm. And so the work with the CSAT, for me, I know there's other ways to go about recovery with different kinds of therapists and credentialed people. I prefer a CSAT. um, And it's very important because the CSAT understands the addiction. And a lot of CSATs are very partner sensitive, which was Mm -hmm. important to me. Yeah, yeah. They understand there's not just the person with the addiction, there's also a partner and there's a relationship. There's three facets that need work. And for those listeners who may not be familiar with the shorthand, a CSAT is a certified sex addiction therapist. And uh, most of those therapists these days are trauma-informed. So we're going to talk a lot about betrayal trauma. Uh, That's going to be a lot of the uh, healing work that uh, lands on the plate of the partner. Also, the addicted spouse will discover that when he follows back all the threads of the addiction, almost certainly at the end, he'll find trauma of his own. So, yeah. Bonnie, I, I love that you are walking with women through this while you're still being open about walking through it yourself. I yeah, mean, me ev- too. 
everybody knows that counselors are all the people most need in counseling. They just don't admit it. So, <laughs> uh, you know, when I started writing for Oyster Bed Seven, I was very vulnerable and authentic that my marriage does not have it all together. I didn't know how true that was, but <laughs> but I n- I have never ever ever painted us as perfect. So let's say I'm a woman who just has had a D-Day or uh, maybe it's been a little while and I haven't been able to figure out what to do. And so I go to your your webpage. What does this process look like? What should I expect to encounter besides a gracious listening ear? <laughs> and really, that's that's the most important piece for the first few sessions because part of healing from trauma is getting it out. Um, The trauma brain cycles a lot. You know, there's a lot of rumination and allowing her to vent and get it out to a person who really gets it is Mm -hmm. healing in itself. Yeah. Yeah. So once, once that starts happening, say that's six months of just, okay, I'm starting to find my feet again, then where does the process go? Well, I'm, I'm asking coach, such, uh, this is such guy questions, I'm realizing, <laughs> no. even as I'm saying it. No, it's fine. Hey, you got to have a roadmap if you know, to get where you're going, right? Yeah. Well, that was a guy thing to say too, but anyways. <laughs> I love maps. I love them. And I didn't have a map. So I, that's what I want to give women is a, a map how the process works. So I'm glad you're asking these questions. So after that, after she's, you know, brought forth all she can, then as a coach, I'm just going to walk alongside with her, helping her get to where she wants to go. So each session is really about what do you want to talk about today? What's your goals for this week? How can we strategize together? Let me ask you some questions. What, let's pause there. What kind of goals, what, what are some of those? What does that look like? Are these emotional? Are these physical in their world? They can be, you so know, what, it depends on the woman. Mm-hmm. And you know what, how different all the women are. So hmm. it depends. If she, some, some women crave knowledge because mm-hmm. the more they know, the more they can protect themselves from more danger. Mm-hmm. So they learn all about the addiction. They learn all about everything they can, you know, on this journey. And some women just need to be heard and seen Mm -hmm. and assured that they're normal, assured Mm -hmm. that they're worth it, assured that Christ is with them, Mm -hmm. you know, assured that God will not let the pain of this devastation destroy them and to assure them that they're still in there because for a while you kind of lose your identity. You know, this bomb's mm-hmm. gone off in your life and you're not quite sure who you are anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And assured that they're worthy of love must be a huge component. Yeah. Cause you know, D-Day is the ultimate rejection yeah. from, from a partner's perspective. I mean, and I know the addicts, I like to say, the people with the addiction, mm-hmm. you know, are going through their stuff too. What role does discovering self-care come into play? Huge, huge. So in order for her trauma brain to calm down, she needs to eat properly. You know, some women are, their appetite. So, so with trauma, 
you can have the fight, flight, or freeze. And when that happens, your body actually shuts down non-necessary functions for life. And appetite's one of them. So she could she, she could lose appetite and start losing weight. And without proper nutrition, her brain can't heal. So self-care really gets down to the very basics of life in those first few weeks or months. It's, it's about eating right. It's about taking your vitamins. It's about sleeping if you can. Sleep's so disrupted um, because nightmares happen. Your brain mm. can't shut off to sleep. And then... Of course, on the other side of it, there can be too much sleep. She can, you know, fall into a depression. All of these things are normal. But self-care on the very basic level is really important the first few weeks and months. And then at some point, I suppose some of those goals are what are the steps to reconnect, not just sexually, but with this other human that I am living with. Right. And usually that happens pretty quickly. That's, I'm not going to say that's 100% of the time, but she starts thinking about him. But the thing is, before he's in good recovery, he's still that person with the addiction. And he may be sober, but I know you guys know the difference, you know, sober and recovery are two different things. Right, right. And, um, until he's able to hear her and hold a tiny bit of empathy for her, there's not a lot of forward motion with the relationship. And that's where the Samson Society comes in. Because as those guys listen to each other and they, they feel that, I get that. I get what you're talking about. That's empathy. So mm-hmm. when guys can find empathy with other guys, then they can take it outside that meeting to their wife and that is huge when she feels seen and heard and and his remorse is true and deep then things are on track oh my goodness i don't know how many wives i have talked to that just don't feel the remorse from their husbands can you speak to the men for a moment? Because mm. I know that is confusing to men who are like, I'm so sorry. I have told her this. I, And many times this goes with the, can we move on to the next step yet? But I think there, I don't know if there's a common thread you can touch on when wives say, no, I do not feel like he has real remorse. Mm-hmm. I think the real remorse is in there, but it isn't conveyed because of the empathy piece. I think as soon as they start to understand empathy, then they get more, you know, and you guys can chime in. This is my mm-hmm. conjecture. Yeah. When the empathy piece rises, when empathy understanding builds inside the husbands, and they can look at the wife and say, oh, I really did hurt you. I mean, because there is going through the motions and that's good and that's that's absolutely a trust builder, but yeah. it's, it's that empathy that builds the regret that yeah. is finally felt. I don't, I, Maybe I can put it this way. I, from my experience, I do know that 
you know, we develop an addiction as a way to avoid pain. It's a way to anesthetize, a way to avoid pain. So I find some, you know, pleasurable alternative because there is this painful reality that I don't know how to deal with. Now I get in recovery and uh, there's this massive relief when finally my secret is out, even if it's not out to, to my wife, you know, I disclosed to guys before I disclosed fully to Allie. So there was this, you know, there was this stretch of time in which I was uh, unburdening my guilt and kind of experiencing my pain, learning how to confront my pain. But uh, my wife was still sitting in pain and I don't like pain. Um, I don't like, I don't like just sitting with somebody who's hurting. I want to fix it. I want to move on. I'd like to distract. I'd like to make it better. I'd like to make her laugh. I'd like to do something, buy her something, take her somewhere. Let's do rather because that, because I'm still avoiding pain. It's the same mechanism that drove the addiction that makes it difficult for me to engage with my wife in her own recovery. And that's, you know, that's the one thing that, uh, you know, hopefully we do learn in recovery and we bring that home, uh, that uh, pain is not fatal and I can sit in it and survive. And it's not even as, um, it's not entirely negative either. There are lessons even in the pain. There is richness even in the pain. As, as strange as it sounds, there's even something therapeutic about the grief and the pain and feeling someone else's wounds. But uh, for somebody who has had a lifetime of avoiding pain, to learn to do it different uh, takes some time. And when that he gets sense. it, yeah, yeah, it makes total sense, total sense. But when he gets yeah. it, they'll be they'll level up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, can, I, yeah. can I throw something out and get your perspective on that, Bonnie? Sure. When you, uh, I, you're talking about empathy and that's such a key part of a spouse, whether it's a husband or a wife feeling remorse from their spouse who has hurt them. My fear when I hear that word is empathy is something that happens internally, but if it's never expressed properly into the into the conversation, then the other person doesn't know they're feeling it. And it makes me think of confession in the truest sense of the word to agree with, not to admit you did wrong, but to agree with another person is confession. And so for a wife to hear, oh, I see it. I see you, I know you, and I agree this is what happened. Your version of history happened. That That's when the expression of emotion occurs. And I just think God wired us for confession to reunite broken pieces. So give me your thoughts on that. Absolutely. That's why full disclosure is so important. <laughs> I think I may be taking this another way than you wanted to go, but um, I just wanted to hear your thoughts. So go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Confession. Confession is when you've only had drips of discoveries to hear the full extent is a sacred, is a sacred process. Um, And get to back to 
how that will help her heal. In the beginning, it's excruciating. But to finally have, you know, the full story and for him to have all those secrets out, you know, Satan has no more corners to work on. Um, to have all those secrets out helps helps things. It's it's the foundation for the growth. Well, Bonnie, how do people get in touch with you? We've um, sure sure uh, strongwives.com. There is contact button at the bottom or bonnie at strongwives.com but you can also hear uh, me and three other women who are all you know older seasoned wives talk about healthy godly sexual intimacy at sex chat for christian wives that just sounds like a good time (laughs) (laughs) i I hope i hope that i've um you know, I hope that answered your last question. I felt like that kind of went off tangent, but oh, that's all we do here is tangents. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't even put into words how excited I am about the um, the next chapter for Samson Wives, the Sa- the Sarah Society. I just and now knowing that you also are, are involved in leadership, uh, and having met a few of the other. Uh, amazing women who are involved. This is something that we have been praying for since Samson started, that uh, somehow God would put something together for our wives. And now to see it come together so beautifully, I, I, I can't even put into words how excited that makes me. Well, it's an honor and a privilege. And I do want to make one other comment that I'm APSAT trained which is um, mm-hmm. I'm being cer- I've, I'm trained but not yet certified. Um, APSATs are trauma specialists for the partners, and so I'm in the process of being certified. So I just wanted to make that clarification. Oh, fantastic, fantastic! Well, uh, thank you, Bonnie, for making the time to talk with us. I know this is an episode that uh, many of our listeners are going to replay over and over again. Uh, Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Bunk podcast. What a great chat with Bonnie. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that Sean put that together. Somehow I missed a cue. I didn't know that Bonnie was connected to the Sarah Society. Uh, I about came out of my chair when she said that. Uh, it, the news just keeps getting better and better for uh, that group of Samson wives. And a lot of wisdom this woman had to share with us. Absolutely. I. It's just always nice to hear. Uh, a woman's perspective, a wife's experience. I think that mm-hmm. is vital for us guys to to figure stuff out. Yeah. 
And and I love that she didn't, you know, pontificate from a mountaintop somewhere and talk about all of the struggle in the past tense. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think, I do know that her vulnerability and transparency makes her an even safer traveling companion for other women. Nobody has to uh, perform for Bonnie and uh, she's going to be open and honest with them. That, I think that's just wonderful. Well, I know we had a long opening segment, so... I think we're probably about out of time, but we want your brains in an email form. <laughs> Maybe your hearts, but don't make it too uncomfortable. We are boys. <laughs> yeah. So send us your thoughts. Uh, download your brain uh, onto your keyboard and send that along to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. I think that about wraps it, Aaron, for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. Yep, and we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Pirate. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.